Tonight on Arena, John Francis Finn on his new album, Look Over the Wall, See the Sky, and Theo Dorgan on his new poetry collection, Once Was a Boy. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. I guess if you were asked any known fact about my first guest this evening, poet Theo Dorgan, you might possibly say he's from Cork. And being a Cork man is the starting point of his new book, Once Was a Boy. It's a collection of poems that look back on a childhood in Cork, home and family life very much to the fore, early education in the convent. And then the boys' primary school, these poems explore a past where everything is new and every experience is felt for the first time. Delighted to have Theo Dorgan with me in studio this evening. And I was saying to you as we were coming to earth, Theo, really, it has the it has the whiff of an autobiography, an autobiography of it. It's more like an auto inquest or, <laughs> or autopsy, Sean, to be honest with you. Um, you know, at a very funny genesis, I, I, I was, I think, Frequently of my parents, the most remarkable people, really, the trust they put in us all. And every now and then I stop and think, well, what would they make of where we've got to know? And, because um, your, both your parents died uh, relatively yeah, my, my young. My mum was 54, my dad was a 61. And what kind of age were you when that happened? Um, when my mum died, I was 21, mm. you know. And there were 15 of us. So yeah. I remember being stopped once going through Swansea by a somewhat prickly special branch man and asked what my occupation was and heard myself say, and this happens a lot in my life, Sean, I hear myself <laughs> saying things, that I'm general secretary to a Soviet of orphans. <laughs> so were, were you, where, where did I'm you come eldest. You were the You were the eldest. I was so, the first to go white, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, when your your father, your mother died first, so you yeah, you, you yeah. were you were yeah. kind of in local parentis. I parentis. was already, no, yeah. I wasn't. And that would be unfair to the rest of my family. I was already out. Oh, you were gone house. at that yeah, point. Yeah, I was already yeah. gone. Because unlike the generation that we see around us now, we valued getting away and having our own independent lives. Mm. And that's today's bit of crankiness out of the way. Well, mind um, you, they would probably say you were able to get out well, and get, get because, do things for yourself. Because we were prepared to live in squalid little bedsitters and, and, and put the adventure true. before the home comforts. <laughs> yes, this Anyway, is that's a very long subject to get into. No, um, my sister Noreen reared the youngest kids. And mm. no, we did work as a kind of Soviet, you know, for each according to their ability. For a long time, I was the... Um, Supreme Court and Final Court of Appeal, but I've long been supplanted by my infinitely more capable sisters. <laughs> I have a couple of sisters, Sean, but I tell you, when people would upset me, it might cross your mind to send your brothers to have a chat with them. And one day I had a road to Damascus moment, I'll cut to the chase, send in the sisters, the frocks and docks. You know? <laughs> and it w- was it sorted quickly? Just the prospect of it tended to sort out any difficulties <laughs> I might be having. You know, they're tough women <laughs> and gorgeous, and I love them. But we're off track here. No, yeah, I, was I, to I say, started this, thinking. This, there's about, a whole other autobiography uh, in that. But let's let's go to the well, one that we have. The, the poems we have in front of us. Well, what happened is I started thinking about them, and then I've just fell through the trapdoor back into primary school. And of course, I was thinking, as I you know mm. frequently do, just about language, words, the damage they can do, the good they can yeah. do. It's the daily preoccupation, and I started thinking about where I learned language. And where I learned what language, how language is used to control you and how language is your your road to escape, your road mm. to freedom. And to my astonishment, really, I discovered that I was a lot smarter when I was five, six and seven than I think I am now. <laughs> and I found this boy and I want to put it carefully. I found this boy who was me 
But it's like finding a third person. And I found all these little escapades and moments in his life. And I found him thinking the strangest thoughts. And I started, you know, reflecting on this. And then I started really looking at young kids, you know, nieces, mm. grandchildren, nieces mm. and so on. And I'd forgotten just how smart we were when we were very young, how well we read the world, how we were ready to read the world. Um, and so I suppose there's a little escapades and moments from his life. You know? Yeah, so it... <laughs> It's autobiographical in the way any poem by a poet with the with the eye in it. Yeah, well, yourself what eye is, is are we talking but, about? You know, I'm sure that if there's any particular, say, concrete instance that I refer to, I'm sure everybody who was in my class has a different version, version of it. Sure, yeah. you know, all I can say is I hope um, that I managed to capture those memory moments into a poem which will carry them a little further on down the road. I'd be interested to hear what what actually. Do you know what let, let, you've you've touched on the topic of of reading and words and language, and obviously a poet is probably there from a very young age, or potentially there from a very young age, whether he or she knows it or not. Can we hear learning to read? Yeah, um, yeah, and 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 as as a reader, I just got a message of the that, uh, that um a guy a lad I knew I met first in babies in baby's class, um, is just recovering from a, a serious operation. And uh, somebody had told him he was in a poem. <laughs> and I got a relayed text from him saying he was delighted to be in a poem. And, and I hope Jimmy is doing well. I hope he's, he's recovering. He's in intensive care. And uh, I'm saying this while I'm covering up the fact that I'm flicking through uh, the Sorry, book, page 33 is learning to read. Page 33 is learning to read. The little bit of newspaper, the corner of a newspaper fell out. Mm. Learning to read. We are learning to read. Black signs on a white page. Now I am not in the room if I don't want to be. Now I can have a dog, a rich father and mother. We can have a car, an apple tree, a stream in the garden. Now I can be in places where everything comes out right, where men have horses and guns and swords and the boys are always winning their fights. The sun shines and when it rains there are big log fires and mugs of cocoa. There are rivers for catching fish and high mountains to climb, long trips by train through fields of corn or journeys by sea. These I like best of all, with the wind howling and all the sails big and white and full of the wind. And the boy is brave. He steers the ship by the big wheel all through the storm with the captain by his side and never once, not even once, is he afraid. And it isn't all made up like the stories my dad reads out to me. I can read about stars, jungles, dinosaurs, other countries and what grows there, what people do, what an orchestra is and what makes an engine work, the names of places, India, Russia, China, Japan, where people wear clothes that are different from ours and where they eat strange food. Maybe best of all is that I remember what I read. It all goes on when the clock is moving so slowly. When I've done my sums and I'm staring out the window, fidgeting and trapped, I can be back in yesterday's book, riding my pony with cowboys or driving a race car or hiding from pirates in a cave and, if Miss Coffey doesn't catch me, flying free as a seagull. That's uh, the old Dorgan reading the poem, learning to read from but his the collection. But the magic, you remember this, Sean, the oh, yeah, magic this, of reading. Suddenly you don't have to be there. Yeah, this, this is what's extraordinary about it is, is the flight of fancy that that poem is. And I can see the young child, and, and I guess anybody reading that or hearing that can possibly see themselves 
in that young child, you open up the book and doesn't matter what's going on around you, you can be wherever you want. That second line, now I am not in the room if I don't want to be. So you didn't have to stay in the classroom. You could let your imagination run riot. That Were you that kind and of... And then they beat you for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> in some ways what you described there is idyllic, you know, you're a cowboy, you're a pirate on a ship, you're everything yeah. you want to be. But isn't that why we read? Isn't mm. that why we started to read? I mean, I was a paid up member of the secret Biggles Club in the Cork City Library, <laughs> where you'd walk down the past the queue on a Saturday afternoon with the one you just finished sticking mm. out and somebody, you saw somebody with one that you hadn't read and he wanted to read yours. So he did a little deal for a swap as soon as it came to the stamping out counter. So you know? it up together. <laughs> so, you know, you, were, you weren't just, it wasn't just, it was a solitary thing, of course. Mm. And it's the great comfort of the solitary child is reading. But you realise that there are other readers. And maybe somewhere back in there is, is part of the kernel out of which grew the wish to share things with readers, to write things for readers. Because yeah, I think, I, and you had thought about prose, and I mean, and you're talking about nonfiction in that poem as well, loving nonfiction. I as came much quite as late fiction. to poetry in many ways. I love, I love, I, I didn't really distinguish between fiction and nonfiction. I mean, I understood the difference, mm. but I didn't care. Yeah. It was all take me there, and I just want to be elsewhere. And I, I think the first love I had for poetry was poetry as because the poems we were reading, I think were nearly all written to be sung as much as to be recited. So I got very locked onto the sound patterning. And what kind of age were you? Oh, you I mean, this would have been almost right. as soon as it started in the Mon primary, where we right. did a so, lot of yeah, a right. lot so in, into, into Rangado. Out of the convent, into yeah. Rangado, yeah. And I loved the architecture of sound in these poems. And I began to understand very early that the patterning of sound was a key to lodging it in your memory. I could recite, learn a poem off by heart in Irish more easily than one in English, mm. unless the English also valued the soundscape, the sound pattern. And often I was killed for you by the teacher insisting on paraphrasing it. But, you know, yeah. And that's still in your mind. Oh, it's all in yeah. here. Yeah. And a lot of poems, actually, that I learned in Irish. But I, I assumed, because I've been lazy all my life, I assumed just that, um, you know, when I left school, I'd start writing and that would be novels and it would be just like reading. Yeah, uh, it kept us quite a shock to discover the amount of work that goes <laughs> had to be into done. it. You know? Now, as I say, that poem gives us a sense of, of a kind of idyllic, certainly in the imagination of this young child, mm. um, um, an idyllic world that was there to be got via the world of books. If you read for us Rocking Horse, which is on page 29 of the book, a couple of pages before that, we get a sense of even in the infant school, because at, at that time you would have been junior infant, senior infant, and first and then you would off up to the boys' school and the girls went to the girls' school. That's kind of yeah. how it happened in, in most places in Ireland. But we get a sense even in this Rocking Horse poem that all wasn't as idyllic as as the, the world of reading give to you. And again, children know it. Yeah. Because if you saw, if, if a teacher did something that you sensed immediately, it might be only five or six of them mm -hmm. was unjust. Your response was to look around the room and there were always other lads looking and nodding and saying, yeah, we don't think this is right either. Again, children are mm. hypersensitive to injustice of any kind or to complications. Rocking horse. Taller than any of us, the rocking horse in the corner. Black 
and shiny, grey patches all over, a hairy tail and hair on its neck too. It rocks backward and forward. It makes a creaky sound when it's pushed. The eyes are red and yellow. They look angry. They look far away at something way out beyond the blackboard. What I don't understand is this. Mrs. Ryan will pick you up and give you a go on the rocking horse if you've been good, but she'll do the same for one of the crybabies. What's that about? At home, when I'm good, I am petted and praised. When I break something, when I won't do what I'm told, they scold me, what my aunt calls giving out. This, though, with the rocking horse, I can't make sense of it. What is it? Jimmy Daly asks me. Are you all right? I shake my head. I'm grand. Shoved out back down. Home, bouncing a ball in the yard. I think about this. Why did he ask me that? Ah, must have been something in my face. So what's talking inside shows on the outside. I'm staring into space when ma'am, coming out to hang up the washing, says, penny for them. For what? For your thoughts, she says. What you're thinking. Thoughts. What you're saying to yourself that nobody hears except you. All that is called thinking. Can you buy them? I'd like a penny. Pineapple bars are my favourite. They're a penny. Don't know what else for a penny. But she's laughing. That means it's a joke. Anyway, she's gone on up the steps with the wet clothes. That's beautiful. That's um, <coughs> a rocking horse poem from Theodore Bin's new collection, Once Was a Boy. And I, I could have remarked this about um, learning to read as well. The present tense in these poems, I can see you, and I wonder, is this the way they were written? Did you literally, in your mind, Theo, put yourself back oh, to that back classroom, there. back in your home? This book Cork? haunted its way into existence. You know, there's nothing programmatic there. And I suppose, obviously, there must be a subconscious mm. sense of start at the start and finish when you leave primary. But apart from that, all the all the memories are discrete. That's an E-T-E. Yeah. I'm, I'm rarely accused of being discreet in the other sense. Um, and it was like falling down into a perfectly preserved bubble where the moment is still there, still alive. And when you say they're discreet like that, I mean, did they come to you higgledy-piggledy or did they come in the perfect, what feels like the perfect chronological order that we get them in the no, book? I got, they came in little runs of two or three, maybe, uh, and not necessarily in the, the linear sequence. Mm. I mean, there was a certain amount of arranging had to be done after the fact. But I, I think probably if something touched, uh, if something evoked as a, a pain or mm. sorrow, then maybe it attracted the next one and the next one. And then you'd remember. They, and then that day we all burst out laughing because somebody fell flat in his face and off you'd go and maybe yeah. some of those memories. So they were like beads to be strung together, but they didn't necessarily fall in sequence yeah. one to 26. It was, I kept encountering this boy in the third person and looking at him with, you know, kind of amused astonishment. Some of the things he came out with. But did you recognise yourself in him? Oh, yeah, I'm afraid I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wonder, you know, a lot of it was about wonder. And it was Pat Bourne, my beloved editor, who's pointed out that in many ways the book is a a love poem to the city of Cork. Mm. Because, of course, your your native place is all pervasive. 
Yeah, we like get he, the smells of everything. Castle yeah. Dawson or, you know, Paula Meehan's inner city Dublin or Ivan Boland's um, trek through the embassies and through the suburbs. Um, it's a kind of a matrix, you know, in the old world. It's, it's the mother place. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that annoys me about Cork, and there are not many things, is there's a certain stratum of the city always resents the fact that you no longer live there. But I never left Cork. I just live somewhere else. Yeah. And in that sense, none of us ever leaves our birthplace. And certainly the cork never left you. It's, well, it's, it's still well inside that's you. That's debatable. <laughs> but, but, you know, and Pat's right. It is in a sense also yeah. a love poem to the city. And, and you but have the city of my childhood. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, of a, of a different, yeah. of a different time. Yeah. And, and there are poems in this where we see young boys being, you know, taken out of the class or young boys who are from difficult backgrounds. The bomber, I think it is not yeah, yeah, his yeah, name, yeah. young fella. He's dead sound fella. And, and the, the kind of the gentleness with which you, you treat those stories. But we know there are dark things underneath. But we were gentle with each other as well. You see, there's there's this William Golding fantasy, Lord of the mm. Flies, that left to each other. Young boys are savage. No, they're physical. Yeah, fist fights are nothing. But I remember, I remember one particular moment. I remember the, almost the exact moment in one class where a boy from a very poor background, poorer even than us, was being disrespected is the proper word for it by a Christian brother. And he really was, he despised him for being poor and for having poor clothes and for, mm. and for having not got a sum wrong, something trivial like that. But I remember almost the growl that ran from desk to desk you know, we knew this was wrong. Yeah, All of us the injustice knew of it. this was wrong. Yeah. And it surprised me to see that, the um, awareness of injustice. Yeah, it certainly moves into a much darker place when we get into the, the second part, when you move out of infant school into primary school. When you move into an all-male yeah. environment. I, this yeah. also came to me as and And the fear, you get the, that fear of the, the little, you know, the boy who was in first class with, with the nicer, you know, some nice nuns, some difficult nuns, but mm. you, that then when you went up to second class, you were kind of by yourself. Yeah. And maybe we'll finish up by reading the poem, Asking for It, which brings us back to a time when corporal punishment was the way that discipline was kept or not kept, as the case may be, and in, in a nobody classroom. nobody at all thought it was odd that a six foot two man could beat a three foot six boy with yeah. impunity. And a leather. And, you know, some of them were sewing, were mm. picking the leathers apart, putting coins in and re-sewing them. I mean, there was real sadism involved. There's no point in beating about the bush. Not all of them and not all the time, but enough. Yeah, because you, you do. There are nice enough memories in there words, too. Words, lovely phrase, the Ministry of Fear. You have felt you were under the ages of the Ministry of Fear. You know, asking for it. I hold my hand out flat, palm turned up, thumb well out of the way. The trouble with you, Mr. Slap, is that you're too smart. Slap for your own good. Slap. Now back to your seat and mind that tongue of yours. Sweeney beside me can't figure out long division. Asked me for the answer. Carey caught me whispering, You boy, what are you whispering about? Nothing, sir. Nothing? Nothing? Do you think I'm a fool, boy? I don't know, sir. You're asking for it. The consensus at break. What did you go and say that for? I don't know. I just said the words that came into my head. Palmer shakes his head, sorrowful. Never provoke him, he says. Never. We know his father beats him. Kerry is talking to the tall, red-headed brother, their eyes tracking the yard. I note their cold amusement and look away, shaken 
feeling my back go stiff. My hand still hurts, a dull pain like you feel after you've banged your elbow. If the edge of the leather strikes on the base of the thumb, that's what you feel, the lingering throb after the shock wears off. The wisdom says, always offer your left. It's hard to write for a while after if you give them your right. Somebody asked, but what if you're left-handed? I join in the jeering, happy to sink into gang mind, but partly I'm dislocated, remembering the afternoon we brought Bomber in. Bright and clear, Sister Angela ruffling his hair. My rebel angel, she called him, and I half understood. Theo Dorgan with his poem, uh, asking for it from the collection, Once Was a Boy. I'm hoping, Theo, that there's Once Was a Teenager, Once Was a 20-Year-Old, Once Was a 30-Year-Old. I hope they're all on the way to us because uh, it, it, it does paint a fascinating picture of, of childhood. Thanks for well, coming into us this evening. You're very kind and, and my best to Jimmy, who's recovering. And Jimmy was the, among was those poems. Imagine, yeah, I, imagine hope he, I hope he comes out well. of this well. well we, we, we echo that We with promised you. each other we'd look after all our lives. We didn't. We kept the promise, the promise. Perfect. I hope this keeps a promise. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I see it's dedicated to a friend as well. Uh, a friend, an, an unswerving friend is how you refer to Mick Hannigan at the beginning of it. Once Was About is the title of the new collection from Theo Bedorgan. It's published by Daedalus Press. John Francis Flynn, an award-winning singer, multi-instrumentalist, released his album Look Over the Wall, See the Sky earlier this month. As a founding member of Skipper's Alley, Flynn's music musical journey includes his debut album I Would Not Live Always. It garnered critical acclaim, earning Mojo Magazine's Folk Album of the Year and two awards at the 2021 RTE Folk Awards. John Francis's music is rooted in traditional and folk material from Ireland, challenges cliched depictions beyond stereotypical imagery and confronting the realities of contemporary life. Absolutely delighted to have John Francis been with me in the studio this evening. Let us just go wide in and before we start getting you to explain what it is you do, why don't we listen to what you do? Sound. A thunder and lightning is no luck when Dublin City is in the dark. We went out there on a There you go. Opening few stanzas there are verses of the Zoological Gardens from John Francis Flynn's new album, Look Over the Wall, See the Sky. And it's the opening track on, on the album, John yeah. Francis. And in some ways, for me, it explains exactly what you do. You start off with the Zoological Gardens. We say, ah, we all know the Zoological Gardens. We all yeah. know that song. We all know that comedy song. Yeah. And then in, in creeps that kind of electronic, disturbance yeah, in yeah. underneath and you're disturbing the song and reimagining the song in many ways for me it, 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 what do you feel you're doing when you do these these songs in this way yeah I mean I wouldn't like to say I, I wouldn't like to think I was disturbing it but reimagining it for sure mm. or placing it in some uh place that I like I guess it's a the reason I chose it was because it's a Dublin song mm, mm. and we, it was kind of the last thing we chose the tied it was really the the thing that tied the album together as the rest of the album became uh more about Dublin in my head as yeah. we were developing it uh, I was like well what what um what what will t- we needed something to tie it up t- tie it together and I wanted to situate the listener yeah. in Dublin and Zoological Gardens Perfect was this was it, yeah and then 
to bring in the electronic thing or the um, that it kind of sets you up in this like very you're located in Dublin, Dublin, quite a traditional style yeah. of singing, I suppose, or uh, and then and then all of a sudden you're brought somewhere else. So you're still in Dublin, but you're kind of in this weird, ominous dreamland. I, and and maybe my, my phrase, disturbing the song, isn't right. It's more that it's disturbing maybe the pre-conceptions uh, yeah. we have of that song. That's what you're doing yeah, in many 100%. ways. Uh, because that song, we hear it, and you think of the Behan version, nothing mm. wrong with Brendan Behan, of course. I mean, he did more for it, so much for Dublin song. Yeah, absolutely, but, yeah. you know, you think of it as a comedy piece. Ah, we're up the zoological gardens and, and the, the, the accent is emphasised. I mean, you're singing in your Dublin accent. You're not yeah, yeah. doing anything else other than giving us a Dublin version yeah. of that song. But you're 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 letting us see perhaps a, a darker version, an un an uncliched version of of these songs. Yeah. To what extent are you are you fed up and have you been fed up for a long time with that kind of stage Irishness is often that's often put in around balladry in particular. Yeah, I mean, like. I, I I'm I guess like I, I'm very influenced by all of these musicians and singers and writers and you know like Bean and uh, the Dubliners the Clancy brothers all of those people mean a lot to me and mm. even it's it's actually I guess um, and that that's I don't think that's not real and I don't think that it's it, it's not worthy I think like all of this is like fantastic music and fantastic for its time and even now. But the song itself, um, I think, is, I guess, I wanted to position it in a, I guess, for now, what, yeah, what it means a, a now is... contemporary Dublin. Yeah, contemporary yeah. Dublin. And yeah, I think that we, we've sold ourselves or the country has sold itself in a certain way to gain for, like for tourism or for industry mm. or whatever or like how like people see us from the outside how we're sold in Hollywood or yeah you know for example you know, I I, know. you did you did a stint didn't you on a, on a cruise ship at one point I did, where yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where perhaps you thought there is another way to 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 perform this music. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that experience. And and again, I, you're always very careful. Anytime time I've spoken to you, I know that you you don't dismiss how other people do things. You just you you have to talk about the way you do it. But what yeah. was it about? Tell me about that experience on the cruise ship and what how it impacted on you and what you did subsequently. Well, I was yeah, I was playing. First of all, the setting was the, a Disney cruise ship, and Darby O'Gill's bar on the Disney cruise ship. So I was waking up every morning and having breakfast beside, you know, some some loud dresses, Mickey Mouse or Goofy. Gotcha. And I was expected to play, sing songs, uh, mm. and play music in uh, in Darby O'Gill's pub. And I was thinking to myself, Jesus, this is hilarious, hilarious. But also kind of, I guess it's kind of shocking in terms mm. of like, like, you know, what are we expected to do as Irish people? How are we seen as Irish people? around the world are we seen as these kind of, I don't know, fun loving uh, lads with who drink too much and yeah. there's a crock of gold at the end of the rainbow and, you know, leprechauns dancing around the place. And, and I think like as you tour around, 
America in particular and other places, you know, you see these people who expect that. Yeah. You're on the Disney cruise ship, they, they certainly yeah. expe- expected that. And I was like, do, do you know what, this is, we've been we've been sold off and our music is worth more than that, you know. Yeah. And our culture is worth more than that. And we're, more, we're, as Irish people, worth more than that. And that's that's precisely what you've been doing across the the album. You know, we'll work with Lancome and, and you know, that whole new generation of, mm. of of Irish musicians. I'm going to start um, uh, uh, as we talk here because the the, the uh, zoological gardens that we listen to straight in with your with your voice. That's very seldom the case, or certainly it's one of the things that you do. And I'll start uh, Willie Crotty mm. underneath me. You you have the headphones on as well, because. Yeah. This is one of the things that you do. It, 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 this is this introduction is in the guts of I think maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. Now I wonder to what extent even just immersing yourself. I mean, we can hear the the ambience of it there in our headphones. Yeah. Immersing yourself in these electronic introductions, how it begins to inform what you do when you start singing. Um. I guess like it it brings you into uh, a certain world mm. that is I think quite contemporary and um yeah because we, we just as we're listening there a saxophone and a clarinet yeah. have kind of dipped in underneath yeah. as well it's there's a certain ominous quality mm. to it um and a certain mournfulness to it but it's certainly not what you. I guess you're not. I guess you don't expect uh, this out of traditional music. Yeah, you wouldn't be given a two and a half minute introduction on the Disney certainly cruise ship not, certainly <laughs> to, not, to certainly the song. Not. You'd be expected to have finished the song. No, you in, would. Yeah, in, yeah. in two and a half minutes. <laughs> and you'd be I'm answered straight on to the next one. Yeah, yeah. and and the Willie Crotty of the song here. It's an interesting story, and it's told from an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's um, it's a, a story of a highwayman. Uh, like it's a, he's a folk legend in Waterford maybe most of us uh, in other parts of the country don't know who he is mm. but he's a Robin Hood type character yeah and it's it's from the perspective of his wife um, who is mourning his death I suppose and kind of she's kind of angry at how he died and when you when, just to listen to a little bit of that lonely clarinet sound mm. exactly yeah you know it begins to give us a sense of Finding your way into that character, 100%. and and we're about to hear now that the bass and the, and the drone begin to kick in, mm. and and this is like this is like the introduction reel. Now you're, yeah. I can feel you getting ready to sing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 then the lyrics come out. We listen to we listen to a verse of it then, uh, and the story of Willie Crotty. That's Willie Crotty from John Francis Flynn and the new album Look Over the Wall, See the Sky. As I'm listening to that, it's so contemporary, mm. John Francis. It, you know, it, it's not that it has run away from its ballad origins or its traditional origins, but it's very much the song of a. It's the song of a 21st century singer. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. it, it definitely is. Yeah. Um. That that side of things, I you don't. St- <laughs> How how consciously are you trying to pull it into somewhere new or how much do you just have to sit back and let the song unfold itself to you? 
I'm never trying to put anything mm. into any like into a like a contemporary context for the sake of it or not trying to drag it into it yeah i actually think that it is all of these music all of this music is very contemporary um we sing traditional music traditional music is very much alive in ireland and it's uh it is so we're singing songs and telling stories and that's contemporary you know yeah. and as long as people are still doing it then it'll always remain co- contemporary i happen to be interested in loads of other types of music and i'm framing traditional music in a yeah you're kind of surprised i think you were yeah. surprised when you started in music that it was content that it was traditional music that you that you veered towards well i mean traditional music was like what i was like it like what i was interested yeah. in. i was always playing traditional music but like in terms of like how i how i framed it it was always uh it was always my interest outside of traditional music, you know what I mean? Yeah, there was as, as much Black Sabbath going on in your in yeah, your yeah. listening as there was <laughs> as there was the Dubliners. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and that 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 has informed it. You've gone out on the road. Um, I'll give some of the the dates for the gigs uh, shortly. In the live gig, those those introductions and those electronic sections, do they have a, have an organic sense to them in which you kind of let you you let it play the audience as much as you let it play you in the introduction? Um, how do you mean? In other words, how how improvised are they? How set are they when you're oh, out on the road? Um, I like there. There's a lot of improvisation. That's like, what I thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, but like, there's certainly we we try to re- recreate the sound of the album as best we can, and depends on who I'm playing with at the time. You know, like there's five. There's I mean, how many musicians are on the album? Maybe seven or eight. Hmm. Um, we 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 tour with I tour with uh, Brendan Jenkinson, Ross Cheney, Cayman Gilmore, Alton O'Brien, uh, and then there's a, like a few other yeah. like Kaya Kennedy, uh, Shamus Highlands on the album, uh, and and uh, I guess Colomar, that means that wh- which Blanc. whichever combination so there's so many or, different times yeah. you know the songs just, change to, yeah. to fit and like we could be playing Vicar Street we'd be playing with everyone. Yeah. But like maybe we'll tour around Ireland with like four or five of them. And then when we're going to the UK, we might have three or four, depending depending who's available, depending. But yeah. it, it's always changeable. Every show is different, you know. Yeah. So it has that it has that organic feel. To exactly. It, which, uh, exactly. I, I, I expected that you wouldn't say, no, this is 30 second introduction. No. Here, and that's that. No, <laughs> certainly not. Listen, listen, and congratulations on the album, John Francis. Delighted that you could come into us this evening and continued success. John Francis Flynn there. The album is called Look Over the Wall, See the Sky. It's out now. John will be traveling around the country, starting in the Set Theatre in Kilkenny on December the 1st uh, and then it moves John Francis mentioned it there Vicar Street in Dublin on December the 2nd Roisin Dove in Galway St Luke's in Cork The Barras in Connacilty Dolan's Warehouse in Limerick and then after uh, Christmas on February the 22nd you'll be bringing Willie Crotty to his home place you'll be playing in the Theatre Royal in Waterford and that will be, be amazing to see and feel and hear the reaction to the song down there because I know the Waterford people are very fond of Willie Crotty big time <laughs> <laughs> thanks a million John Francis sounds thank you Today marks the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy the 35th President of the United States Something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. We just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. 
research to President Kennedy. President Kennedy is dead. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. There you go. That's how people heard uh, about the death of John F. Kennedy uh, back this day, 60 years ago. And despite being traumatised by a sudden death, people immediately began circulating theories about who had fired the shots, how many gunmen were there, why was he killed? And those same questions have fueled Hollywood's fascination with the subject ever since. Dozens of dramas and documentaries devoted to the assassination and its aftermath. With me in studio this evening to have a look at some of those films is Stephen Benedict. I was listening to I was listening to my old pal Marty in the morning this morning on RT Lyric FM and he was there was a, a, a listener who had texted in about people driving along the Nace Jewel carriageway and stopping and getting out of their cars hmm. and crying and yeah. talking because this was only a few months after, after the famous visit to, to New Ross. Yeah, I think in so far as the movies that have been made about him and made about the, the Kennedy dynasty, I mean, filmmakers love to go at like, the, those, those stories. But for me, the best movie about Kennedy isn't a fiction film. It's actually a documentary. And the documentary was made before he became president. Mm. And so um, it's called Primary. And it follows Kennedy as he goes around the Wisconsin, the state of Wisconsin on the campaign in 1960 to win the, the Wisconsin primary. And his opponent then was Hubert Humphrey. And the documentary maker was a guy called Robert Drew. And he was given unprecedented access to Kennedy's campaign. But in addition to that, he benefited enormously because he had these new lightweight cameras and new lightweight according recording equipment, which doesn't so much put you as a fly in the wall. It perches like a bird on Kennedy's shoulder. And there's a really, really fantastic mm. sequence in the film, in the documentary where he's actually in, in Milwaukee and he enters into a big hall and he gets out of the car and he comes into the entrance and the camera's with him all the time. And he, he as he walks into the entrance, his supporters are there and they start to sing Frank Sinatra's song, High Hopes. And the camera behind Kennedy walking through, meeting the, greeting the crowd. Then he goes backstage, up the stairs and then onto the stage and out onto the podium. And the camera's with him all the time and he comes around and then you see behind him is Jacqueline Kennedy. And you can't help but notice the way that she's dressed, which is very, very different from the women in the audience. But that's not a problem. It's not a distancing effect because the women in the audience, she was their aspiration. Yeah. It was a brilliant, yeah. brilliant piece of story. And I suppose when you, when you look at that film now, yeah. You know, through the eyes of the assassination, three mm. years, you were saying 1960 was the, the campaign. Mm. Three years later, he was dead. Yeah. Uh, when you look at a film like that, knowing what's going to happen yeah. three years later, I guess you see it in a very different way, maybe even from the intention of the filmmaker. Yeah. And another thing is you sort of you don't see any security details the way you would you would do now. I mean, mm. let's pretend if we were to start try to do a documentary about any of the the 
potential US presidential candidates, the security details around yeah. it would be enormous and it would be very, very controlled and you wouldn't have the sense of spontaneity. It would be very, very heavily edited and the campaign manager would be there all over you determining what you can and what you yeah. can't use. There's, there was, there's another film uh, made about Kennedy while he was still alive and that focused on his service during World War Two. It's PT-109. PT-109. Is yeah. Private 109? Is that his? No, no. there's <laughs> the name of the patrol boat oh, in, the, in the Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, Kennedy displayed enormous heroism. The boat came under attack and he, he saved a number of men on his boat. But as far as Kennedy, he very famously quoted, he said that um, I actually failed because the boat sank. I didn't protect my own <laughs> boat. But he was given, he was awarded the Navy and uh, Marine Corps medals as well as the Purple Heart and still the only US president to this day that's earned both both honours. But I have to say that for anybody and everybody who was involved in the making of the film, I really sincerely hope they did better work elsewhere because I watched it and it's a very, very poor film. Absolutely. I mean, but the whole thing only came about because decades earlier, his father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., had actually worked in Hollywood as a producer. He was a financier restructuring the studios in the silent era. And then in 1961, with his son and the White House, Kennedy Sr. decided, won't we, wouldn't be a good right. idea to make the movie and it just went over I'm, budget and nobody went to see it. Perhaps it wasn't such a good idea. No, it might have been a good idea <laughs> to it make it, but make it better, please. Yeah. Um, however, you did mention Jackie Kennedy in the midst of all of that. And one yeah. of the films that we speak about is one that is specifically dedicated to the First Lady, mm. Jackie Kennedy, Natalie Portman in the title role. Let's have a listen to a clip where she's um, getting involved in the funeral arrangements. Well, as I'm sure you know, tomorrow we're expecting close to 100 heads of state. 103. Yes, I'm sure that's right. And I suspect they'll make all their own decisions. Based on what? We've intercepted a threat against General de Gaulle from our assets in Geneva. I'm afraid if he refuses to march, others may follow. I understand. As I said, Mrs. Kennedy, I wish there were more we could do to accommodate your wishes. I'm terribly sorry. Don't be. You and the Johnsons have already done so much. Good day, Mrs. Kennedy. Um, Mr. Valenti, would you mind getting a message to all our funeral guests when they land? Of course. Inform them that I will walk with Jack tomorrow, alone if necessary. And tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank for that matter, I won't blame him. And I'm sure the tens of millions of people watching won't either. <laughs> That's uh, Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy there. In the film is called Jackie, isn't That's it? Right, yeah. Uh, and and uh, Jack Valenti is the is the kind of organizer that she's speaking to there, played by uh, Max Casales. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why the movie works is because this is really effectively the first time a filmmaker bothered to tell the story of the assassination from mm. the point of view of Jackie Kennedy, wife of the president, remind herself of the mother of, her, of their children, and without without laboring the point. I mean, when I was watching the movie. You know, it really let somebody let the audiences know something that's quite often overlooked when they're talking about the conspiracies is that this is the lady who was actually in the backseat of the car driven at breakneck speed yeah. three miles from Dealey Plaza to the hospital with her dead husband in her in her lap with his head blown to smithereens. Yeah. And I think what the great another great thing about the movie is Pablo Lorraine's decision is the to, to personalize the story. 
and focus on the family trauma and just basically relegate the politics and the conspiracies. Yeah. And Jack Valenti were saying to me beforehand, he went on to be um, a, a long time president of the Motion Pictures Asso- Motion Picture Association of America. It's like the movies were all around <laughs> the Kennedys <laughs> yeah. in some ways, weren't they? They were kind of they were prime assassination or no assassination. Yeah. They all were always were movie fodder. Yeah, they were very yeah very charismatic that way. But I mean, the thing was that Valenti came in in 1966 to replace what was called the Hayes Code mm. and the liberalisation of uh, the film content. So he was he served in that position for decades, thereby helping shape American cinema enormously. Of course, the family drama is one thing, mm. but the conspiracy theories. Ah, yeah. I mean, as you say, they started from the moment um, from the moment he was shot. Yeah. The conspiracy well, I would actually started. contend even beforehand, because you've got to remember that Kennedy was the first Catholic president of the United States. So the, the Catholic, con- this conspiracy mm. theories surrounding a Catholic president, even before he became president, were enormous. So we've got to remember that one as well. Uh, let's go on to a clip which features, in fact, it's, it's John Malkovich. Now, this isn't specifically about the Kennedy situation. Yeah. It kind of refers back to it. Maybe if you give us the setup of this film, because it's interesting in how it handles it. Yeah, this is In the Line of Fire starring Clint Eastwood. And he plays a special agent who was part of the Kennedy security detail mm. on that fateful day in Dallas. And 30 years later, the movie was released in 1993 and 30 years later, he is still on the Secret Service and he receives a phone call from this lunatic played by John Malkovich, who is hell bent on assassinating the, the president of the United States. McCrawley. Why not call me Booth? Why not Oswald? Because Booth had flair, panache. A leap to the stage after he shot Lincoln. Where are you? Closer than you might imagine. It's very exciting to talk to you. I feel like I know you. Oh, how's that? I've read about you, seen photos. You were JFK's favourite agent, the best and the brightest. But that was a long time ago. What's kept you in the game all these years? Why don't we get together and have a drink? We could talk about that. Oh, I'd love to. I think the less you know about me, the better. Oh, I... Because I'm planning to kill the president. Oh, now you shouldn't have gone and said that. It's a federal offence to threaten the president. You could go to jail even if you don't mean it. I mean it all right. John F. Kennedy said all someone needs is a willingness to trade his life for the president's right. That's right. I'm willing. And going up against you, this raises the game to a much higher level. There you go, Kevin Costner and Clint Eastwood in. No, John Malkovich. Sorry, sorry John Malkovich. No, but John I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Yeah. <laughs> John Malkovich and Clint Eastwood in in Line of Fire. There, Stephen Bendick with us speaking about movies around the Kennedy assassination. What's interesting about that is we're 30 years on, yeah. and this wonderful fiction conspiracy theories can abound. Are you going to call me Oswald? Are you going to call me <laughs> Booth? You know what are you going to call me? Yeah. Um, and and the idea is that it would be the president of 30 years later that mm. was who was going to be assassinated. But the problem with the conspiracy theories of earlier movies, I yeah. suppose, in some ways, like how much did were people really taking those on board almost as if they were documentaries? Well, there was actually, it's interesting you should mention that because there's a documentary type movie that was released in 1971 called The Day of the Jackal. Now, I know that's adapted from Frederick mm. Forsyth's novel and it's about the assassination attempt on General de Gaulle, but Forsyth set his story in 1963. And there's a sequence in the movie where the jackal sits down to talk to the gunsmith played by our very own Cyril Cusack and they're discussing the target. But on the table in front of them is a magazine and the magazine is opened and there's a photograph of John F. Kennedy right there. So the audience are being 
clued yes, into really yeah. what it's about. So the, the Hollywood were actually addressing it without addressing it directly. There's another brilliant, I think one of the brilliant films from the 70s, The Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty, where he plays an investigative journalist into an assassination of um, a political figure which doesn't echo John F. Kennedy's assassination, mm. but Robert Kennedy's assassination. And he starts to unpick the, the Warren Commission type investigation. And he discovers there's a corporation called the Parallax Corporation, which are actually yeah. operating assassinations. Let us uh, go to, I suppose it has to be the kind of the daddy of them in, in some <laughs> yeah. ways, doesn't it? JFK. And now I get to my Kevin Costner and yeah. D- Donald Sutherland. And they are asking, I suppose, the only important question in the midst of yeah. all of this. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Is that why? Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Kevin Costner and Donald Sutherland in a scene there from Oliver Stone's JFK. Uh, Stephen Benedict with me in studio this evening. The Oliver Stone, of course, he he hasn't just he hasn't just had one uh, mm. conspiracy theory. He has, it seems to have a whole load of them. He's Mister Conspiracy Theory. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that I find brilliant about this film, if we just want to put aside the conspiracies and mm. all the disputed facts, because we'll be here till the ends of yeah. the earth. But just to focus on how Oliver Stone made the movie, because I think it's actually a blistering achievement. What he decided to do was he he wanted to make it a great detective movie, and in that respect, he knew that he couldn't solve the solve the mystery. But what he could do is he could unpick at least the Warren Commission and say that that was uh, the findings that Oswald acted alone were not true. Mm. And in that respect, he was drawing on a, on a, ja- a fantastic Japanese film called Rashomon, directed by Akira Kurosawa. And that film famously gives us four contradictory accounts of the two crimes. And at the end of the movie, you don't know who was telling the truth, but you do know a crime was committed. And so the same thing can be applied to JFK. At the end of the three hours, you don't know necessarily who did it, but you know what, who, you know what didn't happen. Yeah. And you know that Oswald didn't act alone. Um, do you think there are more JFK movies to, to be made? Oh, look, the thing is, it's so wide open. Every single generation seems to find new data about new, new theories. I mean, there's one about the, what the doctors knew and what they didn't know. But what I love about JFK is the way Stone put it together, because he mixes totally different styles of filmmaking. You've got black and white footage and colour footage and Super 8 and Super 16 and 35, plus TV footage and archival. Yeah. And Oliver Stone used all that stuff to give us the different stories, is to so visualise a different of, perspective. It's the kind of the one to watch if you were going to do something this weekend yeah. in, in a way of commemoration. Today, of course, the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy and delighted that uh, Stephen Bennett was in studio with us this evening to commemorate that via the films that have been made about that event. That's our lot for this evening. And Al Fitzmaurice was the researcher. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckles was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Reg Luby. I will talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. I'm off now to the Irish Book Awards. Dying to find out who has won there. Flying in. <laughs> flying in straight away. So, uh, that's tomorrow night. I'll, I'll be able to tell you who was. though. you have heard it before that anyway. John Creedon will be with you after the news.